that's your death sentence for this week. Um, I can only apologise about last week's episode. Um, I'm Fuck sorry. Yeah. Langdon has gotten <laughs> out of hand. He's gone too far. I told you. Yeah, it, it's not okay. I've been working hard on this for over a year now, and I didn't ever want to do an anime episode. I've said mo- multiple times we'll never cover anime on this show. This is about literature. This is about serious stuff for adults, not cartoons for weird perverts. And yet, the moment my back is turned... You blink. You blink. I told you, I told you exactly what would happen. Yeah, I should have listened. I, I, I just assumed... I got that- another one in the can, Gareth. Yeah, you'll have my size seven shoes in the, your can in a minute. Yeah, I've got small feet. You got Deal tiny with... feet, Gareth. Yeah. It's, it's you measured... got feet for babies, Gareth. It's measured differently in Britain, okay? They do it differently in Europe. The size are different. They're still small, but anyway. <laughs> We've got... Uh, I count this as a win. Fine, I won't. Um, We've got a special guest. Uh, for a real episode, not an episode about anime, real books this time. It's Charlie Jane Anders. I would be upset by this implication if it wasn't for the fact that it's also very, very true. Very yeah. honored. Yeah, and we are very honored to have her with us because, I mean, okay, let's let's do the the biography here. Uh, founded io9, a very very good sci-fi and nerd culture website. Uh, that was part of the Gorka Empire at one point, I believe. Um, until, let me just check my notes, uh, a blood-drinking billionaire hired Hulk Hogan to destroy Gorka. That doesn't sound real. Uh, Chai Jane, <laughs> it is not real. Um, Chai Jane also wrote, uh, is it, what, a hundred short, uh, published a hundred sto- short stories? Or, uh, I mean, I don't know how many I've published at this point, honestly. There's been a lot. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot, and they're all good. Um, and uh, let me see, All the Birds in the Sky, was that your first novel or my... Is it, what, is it just it the first I read? It was my first kind of major novel, yeah. Okay. It was my first novel with a major publisher. Yeah, so I read that a couple of years ago, um, what, shortly after it came out, before I started this, um, this podcast. I would have covered it if... Um, you know, I actually started at this at that point. It was really good. I really oh, dug thank it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. Mean, it's kind you. of yeah. Why you're on here? So, um, nice. It's um, very short summary. Uh, there are wizards. There's science. At one point, there's a mecha that is built by a tech company in order to beat up wizards. It's got everything I want in a book. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could you could just. It is uh, a wildly lit book. It is. It's hugely late. And also, even better, the 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 prose is absolutely like sparkling and gorgeous the whole time while it's being lit as fuck. Yeah, exactly. There's like a really well described robot fight. How often you get that in the book? <laughs> so, I was just crying when I read that part. I was like, it's so beautiful. I love mechs so much. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. You can't go wrong with a giant robot fight against wizards of all people. And, um, yeah, so very shortly after that came out, you've, you've, uh, come out with City in the Middle of the Night. Uh, let's do a quick synopsis of that because I, I, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot going on. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so my, my elevator pitch for this book is, uh, girl, gets banished into eternal darkness but uh and where she's expected to die but she survives by learning to communicate with the creatures that live in the dark and basically it takes place on a tidally locked planet which means that there's a day side and a night side and you know the sun never rises or sets and um these the humans on this planet live in sort of the thin strip of twilight between the day side and the night side so I sort of thought about calling the book Twilight, but apparently that title was already taken. <laughs> and uh, and so was The Twilight Zone, which also seemed like a very good title, but uh, apparently that's title. taken as well. Damn. Yeah, uh, but uh, basically it's about, you know, this girl who learns to communicate with these creatures who live um, in, the, in the night, on the night side of the planet. And eventually, as the title of the book 
kind of gives away, she goes to visit their their city that's in the middle of the night that's like, you know, miles and miles from where any human has ever gone. And um, but it's also just about, you know, the politics of these humans surviving on this planet and the different societies that humans have built. And there's a sort of hazardous journey from one human city to the other. And she travels with a group of smugglers. And one of the smugglers is a woman named Mouth, who has a really uh, troubled past. And Mouth is trying to sort of reclaim her heritage and ends up causing a lot of trouble in the process of doing that. And so it's sort of these two women who are both kind of trying to find out the truth about the the world that they live in and uh they end up being brought together by sort of you know their their different different searches for for the truth yeah i mean one of the really cool things i found about it was the whole concept of binaries and oppositions and dialectics and like everything in the book has a another side or a double you've got two narrators the both the narrators are in a kind of couples but there's a you know difficult couples in kind of not great relationships sometimes uh, there's the humans and the aliens there's two cities that are kind of polar opposites to each other everything has its other side to it until actually well, i'm not gonna spoil it for people but um why what kind of drew you to that like very uh strong like dialectical binary kind of um way of way of storytelling yeah, I mean, I've always been obsessed, I guess, with with sort of oppositions and binaries and dichotomies. Uh, you know, you mentioned All the Birds in the Sky, which is about science versus magic, hmm. uh, which is, you know, another kind of binary opposition, another kind of, you know, dialectic, if you want. Um, and, you know, this book really started from the idea of writing about a tightly locked planet because I had been working at io9. We were writing a lot of science articles on that site in addition to our science fiction coverage. And I was constantly reading about tightly locked planets and started talking to a lot of people about tightly locked planets uh, whenever I got the chance. And, you know, uh, I was sort of obsessed with the fact that the exoplanets that we're discovering that seem to be in the habitable zone of their stars are all tightly locked as far as we can tell. And there's a really good chance that we may end up, if we do manage to settle a planet outside our solar system, there's a strong likelihood it would be tidally locked. And what would that be oh, like? I didn't know that. Um, and so I was really attracted to this kind of dichotomy of like the day side and the night side and the fact that, you know, one of them is always, you know, blazing hot and the other one is always freezing cold. And, um, you know, and since then, I've talked more recently, I've talked to some experts who are doing computer models of atmosphere and on these planets and they say actually the temperature difference might not be that dramatic as, as it is in my book but uh that's still what i went with and there's a lot of people have there's a lot of different opinions about that i guess still uh but i was sort of obsessed with that opposition and a lot of the other stuff just sort of crept in there because of that and because it's sort of a thing that i'm always interested in and um you know there's the reason why there's like two couples, I guess, like Sophie and Bianca and then Mouth and Alyssa, is I always like writing relationships between two people. I like writing scenes that are sort of two-handers where two people are talking. I feel like that's often the most interesting scene you can have because it's a chance for people to kind of really talk through, you know, something, either their relationship or some issue they're dealing with. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I, the light and darkness kind of that dictated almost everything else in the book. Um, and a bunch of it's true that a, a ton of doubling and a ton of oppositions did kind of creep in there because of that. Yeah, I really, I really was uh, personally fascinated by the it. It felt like a really fresh um, iteration of the whole uh, Borges by means of Gene Wolfe idea of a future novel in translation, and taking that seriously to the point where it. It doesn't feel like you're explaining the novel for a contemporary audience. It feels like a novel that occurred, like, that would have been written for this planet that then has traveled back into our uh, world. And I really, I like how you handled uh, the breeziness of the prose because of that. Like, despite handling elements of, like, the implication of a tidally locked planet and of the sort of complex ecosystems on either end um, that it didn't get bogged down in, in the way that those typically can be. Uh, what, like, did you have a, 
Did you have any like touch points for writing it or was it all just sort of gut level and instinctive? I mean, it was sort of gut level. I mean, I wanted to write a book that was set on an exoplanet, but that felt more like kind of, you know, a little bit of a literary road trip novel um, on Earth and like had that kind of familiar feeling and didn't kind of emphasize the kind of the exoplanet exploration of it, except that that's the setting. And I mean, the thing about the the translator's note, because it starts with this translator's note, as you mentioned, which says that this book was translated from these two different future languages into uh, the term that actually my editor, Miriam Weinberg, came up with this term, peak English. The idea that uh, – because I originally had said modern English because I sort of thought you know modern English is a, is a classification of English. It's English that starts in the Renaissance and continues up until today, and I think we're now entering a, probably a new phase in the history of the English language. But um, she, she thought peak English was really good because it's sort of – that's the English that was spoken at the time when English was at its peak. Uh, which is probably roughly now or maybe late 20th century. Definitely um, English is lit, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And um, I, you know, there were, there were versions of the book where it was a little bit more kind of pastiche and a little bit more self-consciously kind of everything being translated into like 20th century British English with like a little bit of, you know, a a little, almost a little bit of campiness to it. And I kind of dialed back on that. I wanted it to be, not something that would bother the reader, but part of why I did that was because I wanted to have – I didn't want to have a lot of strange vocabulary words in there. I didn't want to have different names for all the creatures and all the technologies and all of the other things. I wanted to just say, well, there's this creature with like weird spikes coming out of its back that like spits acid vomit, and it's called a cat, and that's what it's called. Mm. And you know, I wanted that, and so you get like this kind of – it's it's – it's easier to read in a lot of ways because none, there's no strange vocabulary that you have to worry about except for the name Gellet and I think maybe one other thing. Uh, but you get these jarring moments where you realize, oh, when they're talking about a cat, they're not actually talking about a cat like on Earth. They're talking about something completely different. And it's this sort of defamiliarizing thing that I thought was really fun, you know, that I, I didn't go as far as I could have with the campiness of it. But it was something that, you know, I thought simultaneously made the book easier to read and also uh, – a little bit more disturbing to read at times. Yeah, it yeah really it's, works. it's that classic. It's that classic uh, Gene Wolfe trick from from Book of the uh, the Long Sun or Book of the New Sun, which is at least where I'm most familiar with it. Of the the displacement of the meanings of words in order to generate that that weird dis- like you're talking about the weird disturbing aha moment when it clicks. It's like, wait, no, I am not reading what I thought I was reading. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, well, wait, I, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I will happily take the Gene Wolfe comparison. I, I'll take that. You know, <laughs> it's it. Um, I, it was also really, really drawing that the uh, a lot of times the prose of it read like it was a very well written, uh, like a very well written young adult novel. Where if we oh, define that term, where if we define that term by like the approachability of prose because i i mean if we look at the books that are put in that category they span so wide that it doesn't really seem to talk about anything substantive about the book um the only thing i can pick up for a substantive core of of that marketing term is the the approachability of the prose and i found it satisfying that ironically you're talking about some some depth and and complex things and then doing the literary sleight of hand that we were talking about but at no point does it feel like you're reading something tricky it just sort of accretes <laughs> oh yeah yeah and actually i mean i love young adult books i'm writing a young adult trilogy right now and you know uh i did kind of one thing about young adult books that that i love is the immediacy and i felt like for definitely for sophie's narration i wrote sophie's narration a bunch of different ways. I think I wrote it third person past tense, third person present tense. You know, I wrote it and maybe first person past tense as well. I can't remember. Uh, I tried it a bunch of different ways and writing Sophie's narration first person present tense felt like the most immediate and most like you're right there with her. And she's the one who has to kind of carry a lot of the, the really intense, scary moments in the book. So I needed it to feel like you're you're sitting, you're you're basically in Sophie's body as she's going through all this intense stuff 
and, and that was something that was really important to me. And um, so, yeah, it was interesting. The um, yeah, I, I I was trying for that kind of immediacy, and uh, I, I guess I forgot what else I was going to say. Sorry. Oh, no need to apologize. It's it's fascinating just hearing the thought process of how a book developed because that's um that's I think something that isn't often made um adequately transparent to people either in like the critical world or in the readership world. Uh, like a lot of times we get these really well written hagiographies of writers oh, or yeah. um, like or like the mythic story of how a book gets formed, but the the little actual granules of just like this was in the back of my head as I was doing it. So yeah, that, and that, I, ironically, there's another touch point within the way that, and it, this part reminds me of uh, like a well-written literary novel at this point. When long effectively nothing are going on, but it's still pleasurable to read because you feel like you're connecting with both the world and the characters in it. Like it's not so much always driven by eventness and like high stakes elements it's also uh like that was that was a bit that i found um very refreshing and if you're uh you're very unnervingly accurate portraiture of uh the relations of people at that point in time to the point where um the moment it really clicked for me was when you got to uh in a progressive student union in their equivalent oh. of a college and everyone starts snapping after someone says something that they agree with. And oh, I, wow. audib- I audibly <laughs> groaned because I was like, I've been in that room so many fucking times. Oh my God, this is exactly how dumb and childish and dorky as it would be. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'll still do that if I'm like at a poetry slam or whatever. I'll snap my fingers if, if there's something really awesome. I don't know. It's a time um, and place thing. It was just more that, like, I I liked how very specifically accurate that portraiture was, and how it yeah. felt. It felt natural as it came up. I was like, "Oh, this person has walked the walk." <laughs> yeah, yeah. twelve hundred years you know, in the future, and like students are still kind of cringing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love. I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, I especially now, I'm very grateful for student activists and young yeah. activism in general. I mean, I you know. One of my huge influences as a writer is, is Doris Lessing, and she captures that so well, that feeling of being a young idealistic person surrounded by other young idealists and a lot of like really kind of fucked up manipulative stuff is going on, but you believe in your friends and you whatever cause you're, you're behind and you just you just go with it. And like a lot of her books are about that because I think she was really heavily involved in activism when she was young. And, you know, one of my favorite books of hers is The Good Terrorist, which is literally about somebody who is living in a group house with other sort of idealistic young people. And they decide they want to uh, be terrorists. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, they're they're not very good at it. Uh, But it's about sort of people who get really, really, really led astray. Uh, And I I love that that she pulls that off. And, you know, uh, that opening section – 20 or 30 pages of the book where as you say it's kind of a slow boil for the first like 20 pages or so um you know the the book originally until pretty late in the process the book started with sophie kind of uh taking the 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 three food dollars or whatever the the money that that bianca has stolen in and putting in her own pocket and then getting arrested by the police that was sort of page one originally was like sophie getting grabbed by the police and dragged into the night. And I sort of decided that the book needed a little bit more build-up to get to that point so that you understand who Sophie is and who Bianca are and Bianca is and and, and why Sophie's willing to do that for Bianca, kind of. Because otherwise it just, it didn't feel like it had enough, um, it didn't feel like it had enough weight, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And it also sets up... It would have been a totally different uh, book had, um, yeah, just started on page one with the the arrest like he, yeah it was good to have set those two got two up and to kind of get invest the reader in in sophie and uh, bianca's kind of semi-romance but not and sophie is, is a lot in, more into bianca than bianca is into sophie and yeah it, good good call basically is what i would okay. say about that it, al- it also set up a really um a really satisfying bit that you held throughout the book of um more like either sideways or diagonal plot motion where 
because of the picaresque like road style format of it, you're setting up these threads of incomplete stories that we get introduced um, after their beginning and we depart as like readers before they get to their end. But because it's tracing that sort of diagonal line, we it it winds up accreting a much fuller sense of of the world that you're writing about. Like it almost it had that satisfying like it was the middle book of like oh I've written twelve books in this setting and here's one of them with oh just wow quite not <laughs> um but <laughs> that's why I was like I read it without looking up um biographical stuff because I think sometimes that can bring in unnecessary and I was like oh this is such a I was I was shocked when I found out that it was your second uh, major novel I was like what the, how the how the fuck do you write this like. <laughs> Oh, wow. 100 short I mean, stories first. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, wrote, I, I mean, I did, <laughs> I did write five other novels. Uh, it's just that, you know, uh, one of them was published by a really small press, and four of them basically never saw the light of day. Actually, one of those four, I cut it down to a novella, and it was published as a novella by Subterranean. But the other, there's three novels that were just never published. Uh, well, we're both we're both struggling writers on this podcast, so I, I very much understand the. That's how I was, at some point I was fixated on the process part. I was like, "How do you?" Because it didn't feel like an assemblage, which which novels like this can sometimes feel like, where someone clearly has like nine or ten even really great scenes in mind, and then they're just threading the needle between them. It felt like one big story it felt like it was a satisfying full novel and not like a connection of little modules but it was so rich um do you have like a running notebook or something that you use to like keep the little granules that you threaded through this of like the the crocodiles and the cats and like the structure <laughs> of the city or was that all organically developing just like at the keyboard uh i mean this this particular novel had a, had a more chaotic process than any other novel I've ever written, um, which, as I said, I think I've written seven at this point. So God, uh, but it it started out just like it started the same way as All the Birds in the Sky, which is mostly me scribbling in notebooks, like blank journals. And you know what happened with All the Birds in the Sky and other novels that I wrote in that way was that I ended up with like a lot of a first draft just written out longhand, and it was good because. You know, I always say that if you're writing in a blank journal, um, it's not top corner of the the notebook is not going to pop up with a notification that you've got a new email or that somebody just dissed you on Twitter or whatever. It's yeah, there's fewer distractions with it with blank journal, and you can write a little bit more stream of consciousness. Uh, what happened with the city in the middle of the night was that I filled like three or four blank journals with kind of garbage. Like it was just uh, the characters weren't clicking, nothing was really working, uh, but it did lead to a lot of world building like basically i have three or four blank journals just full of details about the world and how things work in the world and you know how they deal with sewage and how they how they generate power and all that other kind of stuff and just like pages and pages and pages of of junk about the different characters about the different places in the world and different stuff and the characters were kind of not really there on the page they were kind of a mess and uh then you know Basically, around the time I quit working at io9 and really had the time to focus on this book more exclusively, I really kind of delved into it and uh, came up with you know what the characters of Sophie and Bianca became. And at that point, because of those blank journals, I already had the settings and I already had kind of a lot of the major incidents in the book. I had kind of written versions of just not versions that I was happy with, like crossing the sea of murder and you know. Uh, going to the other city and going to eventually visit the the city in the middle of the night that was all there but it was not it was all terrible it was just really really bad and then i i basically had a version of the book that i wrote uh not longhand but on the computer that was sophie's story and it started with sophie taking the fall for 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 bianca's theft and ended with pretty much the same ending the book has now actually and um a lot of stuff was different but it was the same basic arc and, and once I had that, I was like, I think there's something missing. And that was what I decided. It needed a second protagonist or a second narrator. And so I basically took one of these smugglers who had, were kind of just a group 
in the earlier version of the book and promoted one of them to be a protagonist. And then Mouth kind of took on a life of her own. So it was a really, really chaotic process. It was definitely more messy than anything else I've ever done. Yeah, but it all came together in the end, like in a hell of a way. Thank God. You know, I can't look at it without thinking of how what it what a chaotic process it was. How so, how long was the development time for the novel then? Since it seems like you, I know you like it. It's been a, a, a little bit since you've left IO Nine. How long was the <laughs> uh, this novel in the tank? Uh, I mean, I started working on it late 2013, early 2014, um, and you know, I sold all the Birds of the Sky to Tor in. I think March 2014, and it didn't come out until January 2016. And so during that time, there was still a lot of revision being done on All the Birds in the Sky because, you know, Miriam and, and Patrick at Tor wanted some some changes to it. Um, and I, you know, I was excited to, to work with them, and they had really, really good feedback on it. So I kept having to kind of stop and go back and work on All the Birds in the Sky again. But so I was working on City in the Middle of the Night on and off, uh, from, you know, let's say early 2014 until, you know, sometime last year when I finally, it was kind of locked down, I guess. Okay, well, well, we'll come back to uh, you and this, your book and another project which you're working on, which is coming out soon. But first, I want to play for the folks at home, for, for the fans, for even the haters and the critics, I want to play a little bit of music. Um, so this is a a collective, not a band, collective, named Hers, H-I-R-S. Uh, they're out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as I think the other band on this show are too. Uh, yep, they are. And we'll reveal who that other band is in due time. But Hers are a kind of uh, queer hardcore in the kind of vein of uh, Gloss, if you remember them, they broke up a little while back. And um, they've put out this record called uh, Friends, Lovers, Favorites, where they've kind of invited all their friends and lovers and favorites, which turned out to be like a ton of cool people, to guest on these like really punchy sub one minute hardcore songs. They've got like uh, Shirley Manson from Garbage. When would you think you'd hear her on a hardcore record? Uh, Laura Jane Grace uh, from Against Me. Uh, there's uh, Marissa Paytonosta from Screaming Females, and a bunch of people on here. And like I said, the songs are pretty short, so we're going to play the first two, uh, Wake Up Tomorrow and Last Acrylic Nail in the Coffin. Let's see what they did there. Uh, you can go to their band camp. There'll be a, a link in the show notes. And do check them out because they're really good. Here's hers.
Yeah, that was hers with a couple of songs off their um, new record, Friends Lovers Favorites. Uh, we're going to have another song where at the end of the episode that couldn't be more different. The only similarity is it's also, the band's also from Philadelphia. And you'll either hate us for it or you won't. Don't care, to be honest. Um, <laughs> actually, I do. Please don't cancel me. And um, so we're still here with uh, uh, Charlie. Gr- I, keep, I almost called you Laura Jane Grace, but that's <laughs> someone else entirely. I'll take it. I'll take yeah, it. She's, she's know, cool. Why not? But you- uh, Charlie Jane Anders. <laughs> okay, it's, it's a Jane thing. It threw me off. Charlie Jane Anders, uh, author of City at the Edge of. There's not even uh, my brain. I've completely lost the ability to podcast during my hiatus. Are you about to credit our guest with the writing of City at the Edge of Tomorrow? I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. You know, I traveled back in time and and handed a script to, to Harlan Ellison. You know. <laughs> okay. In a Back to the Future moment. Hey, Harlan, I got that script <laughs> you're looking for right here. <laughs> Anyway, shaking it at a phone. <laughs> Lagda, do you want to do? Do you want to do the intro? Just uh, you know, because you're taking over the, the podcast now. You've observed me. It's going to be anime in it now. So today on Anime Corner, mm. <laughs> I just introduce an anime. Um, yeah. So we have uh, currently Jane Anders. You almost got me doing it. Yeah. All um, oh, right. Uh, Talking about her new book, uh, City in the Middle of the Night. And, yeah. Uh, so, one cool thing that I kind of wanted to, to talk about regarding this book is uh, climate. Climate fiction. There's been kind of a, a burst of that in sci-fi and in um, literary fiction lately. I know you wrote an article about it for uh, Tor.com. But, right. Um, so... The planet, like you say, is tidally locked. One one side is freezing darkness, the other side is burning light. And yet the uh it's still kind of falling apart. Like the technology has kind of run backwards from thirty second century tech to an almost like Victorian era. I, I kind of the technology is a bit all over the place, but it's kind of run backwards. And yeah, the climate itself and just Everything about it is kind of falling apart. Uh, what planet did you base that on? Is it our planet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the, so in terms of the the technology of the humans who've settled on on January, I sort of, I mean, I thought a lot about that. And again, this was during my kind of scribbling in notebooks, doing world building, all that kind of stuff phase. And you know, I really kind of believe that unless we're incredibly lucky, just basic, based on Murphy's Law and based on how things usually seem to go with humans trying to do something really ambitious, um, we'll, you know, we'll, if we do colonize another planet, we'll arrive with like amazing high-tech stuff, and then gradually some of it will fall apart. We won't be able to replace all of it. And I think that you know, uh, it's just sort of, it's just one of those things I was talking to, uh, one of the scientists who I talked to for the book actually did a project on like, how would we set up a moon base? And obviously the moon base is not as far away and it's not as hard to resupply. But basically she was like, we would be lucky to be able to set up something that could be self-sustaining for a hundred years. Um, not any longer than that, because, um, there's stuff that's just really hard to replace. Making making plastic is really difficult. You need petroleum to make plastic. You need um, – I'm, I'm probably misquoting her now, but you need a bunch of things that are really hard to obtain. And my thought about this human society on this other – this planet in, other, in another solar system is that they would just – you know, there's not enough of them and they don't have enough specialized knowledge over that period of time to keep uh, building really, really delicate components and, and to, to set up the kind of laboratories that they would need to have. And in fact, there's basically no computers anymore in in this colony. The only computer we find in the entire book is one that the the aliens, the Gellet, salvaged and managed to keep working because they've got their own science. But uh, I was just like, how would a computer still be working 
you know, if the humans have been on this planet for maybe 500 years, how would they still have a working computer? How would they still have, you know, a bunch of this other stuff, especially if they did have some bad luck and a bunch of stuff was broken in transit on their way to the planet, which is something that's heavily implied. It just seemed unlikely. And there is this trope, uh, which I don't particularly love, of, you know, there's a disaster or there's like – or people go to another planet and re- we regress to a specific level of technology. Like there's – you know, you think about the TV show Revolution where there's some kind of EMP type thing or I guess it's nanotech that causes electricity to stop working and immediately everything regresses to exactly sort of 19th century technology. And it's sort of a way to kind of have this 19th century world in the future. And I feel like that's a, that's a trope. And it's usually that we regress either to the 19th century or the 18th century or maybe the Middle Ages. But it's a very common trope of, of sort of – usually it's post-apocalyptic, but sometimes it is also a colony on another planet. And I really did not want that in uh, my human colony. I wanted it to be a mishmash. I wanted it to be, well, you know, some people – have this level of technology. Some people have a lower level. Uh, we managed to keep this thing, but we didn't manage to keep this thing. You know, so I think that there's there's actually there's lorries as we call them in the book. There's there's cars and trucks. There's not a lot of them, but there's some. Um, people are able to scrounge together pretty futuristic all-terrain vehicles uh, at one point. I guess that's a bit of a spoiler. It, it, your your approach to uh, technology in relation to the world reminds me a little bit of uh, the most recent thing I read that deals of a similar topic would be seven eves by neil stevenson oh yeah that's gonna bring it up actually yeah where where that that notion of uh retaining the dialectical approach to technology because we don't (laughs) like you were bringing up the trope that we have is based on the plot contrivance of i need the technology to be at this level for my story to work or be interesting and not in this world how would they handle the ongoing problem of technology. Right, it, right, right. Like people don't stop inventing things because we run out of plastic. We just don't use plastic anymore. Um, and right. Yeah. You, it, it was really satisfying how you, it, it's obvious that you are incredibly fluent in science fiction and its tropes in order to be able to troubleshoot. Like, no, that's not, that's not the compelling way to handle that problem. This is the compelling way to handle that problem. Um, Well, thanks. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the things that I kind of wove into the book that was another piece of backstory that I came up with during the long kind of scribbling in notebooks period is um, when the humans showed up in their the mothership, in their kind of big colony ship, uh, they dragged a bunch of meteorites or dragged a bunch of asteroids along with them, uh, containing precious metals and you know certain elements that they knew that they need a lot of in their colony, and they basically steered a bunch of those uh, meteors down to Earth as gently as possible, or down, not down to Earth, but down to the planet's surface as gently as possible, so that when they landed, they would have you know, access to a lot of uh, metals and, and other things that they might need. And so and some of those meteors kind of landed all over the place, so there's this whole thing, which I think is it's still in there, but it was a bigger element in some versions of the book, the idea of like the treasure meteors. And there was this sort of prospector thing where people would go out and look for the where the treasure meteors had come down and you know there were some that people had never found and they would go out and search for them and it was sort of like you know a gold rush or whatever if somebody found where one of these meteors had come down they would all just show up and try to claim as much of it as they could because it was like you know exactly like a gold rush and they'd probably all die because uh from the sounds of it like anything outside the cities is a complete slaughterhouse like (laughs) Every time someone leaves the the city, they ninety percent of them don't come back. It's uh, well, I mean, that's if you go into the night. But if if uh, they at least tried to make all these meteors land during in the the habitable area of the planet, but in some cases they may not have succeeded. It's true, you know. It was probably not, you know, they were probably doing the best they could to steer huge, giant rocks in a graceful <laughs> descent down to they didn't want to cause you know earthquakes or you know tunguska kind of level you know they didn't want to do like the thing that wiped out the dinosaurs they so, accidentally genocide the planet and they're like oh no <laughs> oh, well you know more room for us now i guess you know yeah that'd be very very fitting be a, a good brexit novel in that case 
Right. Back to that again. Um, so, so we mentioned John Reese, um, Neil Stevenson. Who, who, who else are your touchstones? Who, who are your guys? Who do you look up to? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mentioned Doris Lessing, who is a huge oh, yeah. touchstone for me. Um, you know, this book, obviously, I was thinking a lot about Le Guin. Um, I was going to say, and, yeah, definitely. yeah, and, uh, and this could be like you know, a lost um, Ansible novel. Oh my god! I mean, I, I'm a little <laughs> nervous about inviting that comparison because I think anytime any author gets themselves compared to Le Guin, they end up looking kind of bad. Like I think that you know. There's no there's no way to stand next to Le Guin and, and come out looking, you know, awesome because her stuff yeah. is just I've been rereading all of the Hainish novels recently and her stuff is just so brilliant. It's even the ones that I had read previously are are even better than I'd remembered. And just this the depth of her world building and her her just keen observations of the way people actually work and the way relationships work. And these little, just all these little moments in like the dispossessed. It's just crammed full of these beautiful moments. And uh, also Octavia Butler, obviously. And I, I think in general for this book, more than usual for me, I was sort of thinking about these kinds of um, big, weird, thinky science fiction novels from the 60s and early 70s that I used to read. Uh, you know, Philip K. Dick is another one, although it's not as much of a direct influence. But um, just these sort of, big weird idea driven kind of um challenging odd novels that were you know being published pretty regularly uh from like the mid 60s to the mid 70s i guess and that that was what a lot of what i loved about science fiction when i was younger and i you know i sort of thought i i actually do think that we need more of that now i think we need more of that kind of you know taking risks and doing kind of big weird stuff yeah, the weird, uh, like, I, I had gotten similar notes when I was reading it, so I wasn't sure if it was just a phantom, because my, uh, my partner has been currently, uh, just finished reading the Patterns series by Octavia Butler, because she'd never read uh. anything by Butler, and, uh, just picked up the, the new omnibus of, uh, the Collected Earthsea works, um, that... Oh, wow. Uh, so I, so all that's been going around and that's been flooding my memory of like, oh yeah, no, I remember reading those things. And then obviously read your book and was like, am I, well, they're big names. So, and she, she did found IO9. So I guarantee she knows these people. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, I would, I would be so surprised. <laughs> I'd be like, cancel the call, Gareth. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. The, um. Yeah, it feels like it is a sort of time-displaced, uh, like, peak-era slipstream novel of, like, when Kobo oh, wow. was doing, uh, like, Inter-Ice Age 4, where it's just, um, and because of that, having the notes of the weird, thinky, like, early sci-fi novels of, like, Olaf Stapleton, where it's just this, you know, a history of the super future, um... <laughs> And, and I agree with you that, that for a while it seems that we had gotten bogged down in a, a false divide, it felt like. There was the um, the harder-edged sci-fi that aired more towards like uh, your Alistair Reynolds or things like that. Which are brilliant books, but definitely don't even seek to be approachable to people outside of that realm. And to be fair, for him it works because he's such an accomplice. He's an actual scientist. Um <laughs> Yeah, and this stuff is brilliant. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic novels. Um, but then we have on the other side of the conceptualized divide, like the very approachable young adult work that sometimes feels only very mildly sci-fi. Like it's it's coming-of-age tales that include little science fiction elements but are not focused on that. And it felt satisfying that your novel seemed to read like it was coming from a place and then talking to you seemed to confirm that of acknowledging like, well, that divide is sort of an illusory one. It's one that culture has created to define in-groups or out-groups of like, oh, I'm reading the good novels, they're the approachable ones and not that brainy bullshit. Or I'm reading the good novels, they have all the good science and none of the feelings bullshit. And it's like, no, <laughs> those are both, like, they're both part of the ecosystem. You can just write a book that has both of those things. It's not forbidden. Like, like what you're talking about with those sort of the key concept of those slipstream uh, the slipstream era of like you can write a literary novel that's literarily satisfying and in the case of uh lessing win a fucking nobel prize yeah uh, exactly. but also have it be science fiction as fuck 
<laughs> yeah, she pulled it off, you know. Oh, you gone? Uh, no, no, sorry, you go on. You, I was gonna let's like finish this thought, then we'll move on to um the people's future. Oh yeah, I, I was I was just gonna say that um this is more for for listeners. It's an absolutely remarkable novel that like strongly recommend picking it up. We've we've read some real stinkers on this one. Oh yeah, um but we have. But yeah, Not no, this them. um <laughs> legitimately strongly recommended the book after I finished it to uh, to my friends. I was like, this is nice. Um and uh w- without an ounce of irony because i also recommended the the horrible uh the horrible book written to own the shit libs written by the ghost oh, of a dead yes. cowboy because it was but i was like yeah. this isn't that you don't have to worry that i'm fucking with you this one's actually <laughs> exactly yeah. okay good yeah, yeah i mean you know uh <laughs> that's that's high praise i don't know i mean uh, yeah, I don't think this book owns any shit libs. Although you never know. I mean, you know, <laughs> good. The 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 little the little bits that you touch on of um of social politics. I was like, oh, and your politics are good. Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, I mean, thank you. And you're, I, really we can't really talk about the end, you. but uh, and you do. And yeah, you're doing you're doing the little nudge with it, like you, you aren't overbearing with it. You're just like, yeah, no, I follow the news. Yeah, no, I got I got good politics. This isn't about that. This is about crazy sci-fi shit. They're so strapped in, but you know, no, I, <laughs> it's not going to come out that I'm a fashy or like my governor dressing in fucking blackface for his yearbook. Fuck you, Ralph Northam. Oh god, that made me so fucking pissed and sad and just like, what the ah, oh, Jesus. I was Christ. like. I was like, you son of a bitch, I voted for you. Then again, the other guy was uh, an open white supremacist. And so at yeah, least God. we only elected the closeted white supremacist. I hate Virginia politics so much. <laughs> well, don't yeah. worry. He's going to use facial recognition technology to prove it wasn't him. So, you know, it's, it's... I hate reality. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like, in, like oh, the worst Black Mirror episode. We're just living in the worst Black Mirror episode. Like, not one of the good ones, but one of the ones where it's just yeah. sort of, you know, like, a the bunch first of, episode like, in the season, random... the last one. It's just like, oh, oh, God, I'm Charlie Brooker. I've got to, like, f- do six episodes, but I've only got the ideas for two. That's one of those ones. We're living yeah. in a Labor Day <laughs> Willie Gibson novel where everything sucks but is just as, uh, as boring as reality. It's, like, it's dystopic and is shitty, but also, none of it's cool or interesting. We don't even get a whip-ass apocalypse and fucking uh, road warrior uh, lacrosse gear or something to tap death brawls and the doomed desert to. No, no, it's just shitty and boring suburban bullshit. And then also, Dude, it's fascist. I, okay, I, I will go to the mat for the later uh, William Gibson novels, okay? Even though they've no, literally I, got I... a uh, villain named Hubertus Big End. I, they're still good books. Okay, <laughs> that part was funny as hell. That no, was, I, 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 yeah. I actually really like his later stuff. I was just saying that he, I, and you know, if you follow his blog, he's had similar kind of um, political insights. That his vision of the super aesthetically pleasing dystopic future is only bad in so far going to get the cool aesthetics. Like he's writing right. the same. His writing has probably gotten better because he's less aesthetically driven and more driven to um, themes and uh, like cogent character work. But he's had the insight of like, if I want to make it realistic, it's got to be kind of bland. <laughs> like huh. that's the thing that's not, not the writing. It's the world has to be kind of bland because it's the heartbreaking bit of like, it's not going to be cool when the cyber fascists knock on the door. It's not going to be, we're not going to have mirror shades and finger blades. It's just going to be this, but shitty. Wow. Yep. And it's like, I hadn't seen that. That's, that is really depressing. It's like, thanks, William. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. But At that least kind your of book is fucking badass, though. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. That. Yeah. And more, and that kind of brings us around to the kind of second thing we want to touch on here, which is uh, people's future of the United States. Right. right. Which, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I haven't read the rest of the book yet. I've been dying to. And I, I've heard that 
there's a lot of those. I mean, I'm, I, it's got a lot of my favorite authors in it, and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm dying to read it. And I've heard that it's all amazing, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. So, uh, just describe the the project for us, because uh, yeah, what? Yeah, what's so the, the people's future. The People's Future of the United States is an anthology that I guess possibly by the time your podcast goes up, it will already have been published. It's coming out in early February, and it's basically an anthology of kind of political short stories about the future of the United States, and it's edited by uh, Victor Laval, who wrote The Ballad of Black Tom, which was that amazing Lovecraftian novella that came out a couple of years ago, and also uh, Changeling, which is that amazing horror novel that was one of my favorite books of, was it last year or the year before? Anyway, it was amazing. It was super great. It was, it's really, it's one of those, Changeling is one of those novels where every time you think you know where it's going, it just throws another twist at you or it kind of pulls the rug out from under you again and it just keeps changing and keeps becoming it's it literally is a changeling i guess the novel is kind of constantly uh switching things up and kind of surprising you and uh it's just it's a delightful novel it's also really scary and intense and weird um but uh so it's it's edited by victor laval and also by john joseph adams who is sort of the anthology mvp lately he's sort of gotten up there with with Ellen Datlow and a few other people as sort of, and, and Jonathan Strand, I guess, as well as somebody who edits a lot of really interesting themed anthologies and really interesting anthologies in general. And so um, it's basically, you know, it's stories about the future of the United States. It's explicitly political and in response to our current shit show that we're all living through. And, um, you know, I sort of struggled with what to write about. I came up with a bunch of different ideas. And finally, I came up with this weird-ass idea that I, I was really excited about, which is that uh, the United States has split into two different countries. Uh, it's There's been some kind of new – I don't know if it's a civil war or just some kind of huge final falling out. And we've split into two countries, one of which is kind of a, a red America and one of which is a blue America. Um, and it's far enough in the future that I think – it's strongly hinted that New York and L.A. and a bunch of the other coastal cities are, are gone due to climate change or aren't what they used to be, at least. And a lot of the country is now clustered further inland. Um, and so you have these two different versions of the United States, one of which is you know, more progressive uh, and also a little bit scary in the sense that it's very kind of cyber, uh, very cyber and very kind of uh, everybody has brain implants and everybody is kind of connected to some kind of mysterious thing called the Anoth complex, which is, you know, some kind of supercomputer that it's hinted can kind of control people's brains a little bit. And so that's called California. So it's sort of basically like San Francisco where the place where I live only pushed like 50, a hundred, 150 years into the future and, more high tech and a little bit, maybe a little bit more scary in terms of the extent to which people are, are wired into their technology. And then the other country is just called America and it's, it's everything, uh, east of the Rockies and it's, uh, it's much more sort of Bible belt and, um, much more kind of like, you know, certain parts of the United States today. Like I used to live in North Carolina, so it's a little bit like that maybe, and so it's it, – and there's this woman named Molly who has a bookstore, and her bookstore is located on the – exactly on the border between the two different countries that used to be the United States. And she has one entrance in each of the two countries so that people can walk into her bookstore from either America or California. And depending on which country you approach from, you see a, kind of a different bookstore, and it's about kind of how – Books are still important no matter what, but also how books can bring us together, but also in a way they kind of can't, I guess. Cool. So I want to ask yeah. you a question straight. I don't want to be offended, but is it Hope Punk? Uh, is my, is that story Hope Punk? I mean, like I said, I haven't read the rest of the book. I don't know if it is Hope Punk. It has kind of a bit of a downer ending. Oh, um, it's, you know... I, I'm I'm still grappling with what is meant by hope punk, but I think hope punk is basically like the idea that we have to struggle and that we have to that you know it's worth struggling to make the world better and to to kind of uh, save the world from all the things that are threatening it. And I think 
my story is definitely about people who want to do the right thing and are struggling to do the right thing and build community. But it's also, you know, it comes out of a time, I wrote it, you know, a year, year and a half ago. It comes out of a time when it really didn't and kind of doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope for people to come together across political divides. And that's kind of what the story is reflecting, that we really can't communicate anymore with people on the opposite side. Like a year ago, that would be like Charlottesville was happening at the time, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, it was literally around that time. Yeah, hmm. yeah, I can see how that could definitely bleed into to, uh, to people's writing. And so, um, the other people in the book, uh, I know um, Maria Devara Headley was in there. I think is Alice Solar Kim in there as well? Uh, is that? Like, I think so. Yep. G. Willow Wilson is in it. She's a she's fucking good. brilliant writer. Yeah, yeah. she's amazing. Um, I she haven't have actually gotten a copy of the book yet, so I. Uh, I yeah, her... G. Willow Wilson has her first novel in several years coming out this year. I can't remember what it's called right now, but I can I can Google it. I, yeah, I, rem- I remember uh, adding it to the um, to the calendar as something we'll definitely cover. Because she uh, also is uh, writing Wonder Woman. Oh yeah, yeah, That's right. Nod to the nod to the few readers of Wonder Woman. <laughs> Ooh, okay, it's a great yeah. run. Yeah, no surprise, she's a brilliant writer. She yeah, is. her Miss Marvel stuff is great, and yeah, get, constantly Air was... <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so you've got two books coming out this month. They're both they both sound amazing. One of them we know is amazing. The other one sounds really good, and. Yeah, um, what what else are you working on right now? Where where can people find you? Um, if people like the sound of this stuff, what what can they do next? Well, I mean, I've got a couple of like projects that are in the pipeline that I can't talk about yet, but uh, I am working on this uh, young adult trilogy that I sold to Tor, and you know, now that I sold it, some they expect me to actually write it, which is really unfair. But you know, <laughs> yeah, what the um, hell? yeah, they and can't just uh, give you the money. That's, yeah, I that's know. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? So I turned in the first book of the trilogy, and now I'm revising it. And that's actually, it's it's a it's kind of it's it's a tough revision because it's my first YA, and I, there's a lot of stuff where I'm still kind of figuring it out. And so um, it's a really challenging revision, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And uh, so there's that, and then um, you know, and and then. I'm work, also working on the second book as I'm revising the first book. Uh, about halfway done with the second book, and then you know, um, part of that I have a podcast. Annalie Newitz and I, uh, the founder of IO9, and I are doing a podcast called "Our Opinions Are Correct." And you know, uh, obviously, it's only the no, second like best podcast out there. Shit. But yeah, uh, but it's the two of us sort of talking about science fiction and geeking out about it, and. Uh, you know, discussing the meaning of science fiction and the politics of science fiction, and uh, we just did an episode about Steven Universe. So I've if you go to uh, yeah, I've, I've yeah seen about two episodes of that, and I'm going to probably watch them all because I think your enthusiasm is oh, yeah. very infectious there. Oh, great! Yeah, if you go to ouropinionsarecorrect.com, it's it's there, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, I really love if more people came and listened to it. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it is a good show, and uh, you know. Well, it's thanks. perfectly acceptable to listen to both this podcast and another one. You don't have to just listen to this one. Um, you should. But <laughs> you can listen you to, to up to three others, actually. Yeah, it's just this That's one, our opinions are correct, and come town. And um, I am not a. I, I do not co-sign come town. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was supposed to be ironic. You should never listen to come town. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah. Um, we do highly and unironically recommend uh, City in the Middle of the Night. It is very good. It does hit those, like, if you like YA, if you like uh, Silver Age sci-fi, if you like strips, slipstream, if you like just big adventures where there's, like, a cool thing happening every 10, 20 pages, then, yeah, do do check it out. Um, but we're going to leave uh, this episode on some hideous sonic punishment the previous uh, uh, musician we played was positive and upbeat and good and they have they are nice people with good hearts 
But this we're about to play is by Pissgrave. It is a, <laughs> and I quote, a disturbing <laughs> and intense listen, a sonic skull fucking devoid of amusement and pleasure and a celebration of pure torment and misery. <laughs> Excellent. I want a job writing uh, the write-ups for metal albums. Yeah, uh, this one, it was uh, controversial for its uh, cover, which is <laughs> one of the most hideous things I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, yeah, it made my stomach turn, and I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you were like an edgy teenager who went to Rotten.com, then you will have seen stuff on similar level. Uh, but the album... The two songs that have been released so far off there off this album, uh, which is called Posthumous Humiliation, uh, Euthanasia, and the one we're about to play, Into the Deceased, they both slay. Pissgrave are, yeah, they're, they're edgy teens, but they can fucking rip, and they do, consistently and thoroughly. They rip so, so hard that I throw up every time I listen to them. It's, I know. It hurts it, my body. When it, when it happens, but it, I'm compelled. Yeah, they're really, really amazing band. And, um, yeah, if you ever see a guy walking around Manchester in a Pissgrave t-shirt, then say hi, that's me. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, Pissgrave with Into the Deceased. And uh, come back next week, because we're going to be doing... We're going to have an all-star cast to cover... Uh, Lords of Chaos, the black metal church burning stabbing movie with uh, one of the Culkins in it. Because <laughs> nothing makes sense anymore. <laughs> We're going to also be covering, oh, what, what have we got ahead for us in uh, season two of Death Sentence? Uh, we're going to do um, Marlon James's new book, uh, Red Leopard, Black Wolf. Could be Black Leopard. No, Red Leopard, Black Wolf. That's coming up. We've got uh, Esme. Uh, uh, we've got the collected schizophrenias uh, coming up soon. That's going to be a really good one. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot coming up. And uh, so stick if, around. If oh. Gareth even blinks, more anime corner. There will probably be anime <laughs> corner, yeah. We will Don't be discussing sleep. anime. Don't sleep, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to go stock up on Red Bull and like, guard my computer and prevent... Langdon from ever speaking about anime ever again. Um, we will probably do an episode on Neon Genesis Evangelion when it's on uh, Netflix. But um, yeah, here's some uh, go read City in the Middle of the Night, and here's Pissgrave. <laughs> 